I believe that chaplains are peculiarly, uh, that's a hard word, uh, their <laughs> own tool. I am the tool that I bring into that room hmm. um, to be able to connect with someone or hear their pain or see that they want to be challenged by, you know, the next question or like me listening enough to say, oh, say more about that. You know, I need to be attentive and uh, a non-anxious presence. This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com, promoting excellency in professional hospice chaplaincy. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. For more information, you can visit hospicechaplaincy.com. We are your hosts, Joe Newton. And I'm Saul Abema. Thank you for joining us on this new episode. Uh, welcome to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today, as we celebrate five years, we have three special guests joining us. We have Kathy, Claire, and Petra. Could you introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, I'm Kathy O'Donohue. I am a chaplain with the Norwell VNA and Hospice in Norwell, Mass., right outside of Boston. And I received my MDiv degree out in Chicago, where you guys are, from North Park Theological Seminary. And I've worked in hospice for about 15 years now, and it's been quite an adventure. Well, my name is uh, Petra Vanderwater, and I am uh, ordained with American Baptist uh, USA and uh, part of uh, Crosswalk Church in Sunnyvale and, and part of Growing Healthy Churches here in the Bay Area. Um, I'm momentarily working as a hospice chaplain with Pathways Home Health and Hospice in Sunnyvale uh, at the heart of Silicon Valley. And um, Claire is uh, my colleague. I have a master's in Christian leadership from Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, I am momentarily enrolled in a doctor of ministry program at Fuller in spiritual direction with a focus especially on um, healthcare chaplaincy. Um, I am from the Netherlands, so my former career was there. I've been in hospice now for uh, four and a half years. Um, I did my... Um, CPE at Stanford, and after that I worked as a relief chaplain in the hospital for a while while still traveling, and I enrolled in hospice through a friend who said, we need someone, but I, I love it, I love it, so, yeah. Claire, go ahead and introduce yourself. Oh, hello. Good morning. So I have been on the hospice adventure for five years. And I currently work as a hospice chaplain and um, also the supervisor of the chaplains here at Pathways, which is Home Health and Hospice in Silicon Valley at Sunnyvale. And I have a little bit of a different background in that I have a master's in counseling psychology and I have a background in Christianity and Buddhism and I see myself as very interfaith. So that's clear. Thank you. That's clear. You didn't talk about your other previous education. Oh, my, my previous life, in the, I was born <laughs> in England, and I have a PhD in molecular biology. So I transitioned from science to working with the heart. What an awesome <laughs> transition. That, how did that happen? Good combination. Just, <laughs> how, did that, how did that work? I mean, what caused you to make that, that, that change? How did that happen? Well, I was always 
had a natural aptitude to science. So it was kind of, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I kept following the science track. And then I, when I got to the place of, you know, being a scientist and working in a lab, I just realized that my heart wasn't in it. And I felt like I had many other people skills that weren't really as needed in the scientific field as they might be in other fields. <laughs> Good observation. <laughs> so thank you all for joining us. Um, since we are celebrating five years, how long have you guys known hospice chaplaincy? And how have we worked alongside you over these last five years? I just recently found you a few months ago, hmm. and I was trying to remember if I really just did a Google search, and I think it might honestly be true. Just typed in the words hospice chaplaincy into Google, and you popped up. Uh, it's been such an incredible blessing to me. Uh, to find such a wonderful group of colleagues who has such a, a wide reach uh, worldwide. It's very exciting to be part of this work. Yeah, and, and I, um, since the start of the shelter in place uh, under the COVID circumstances, I um, connected uh, through social media, through Facebook, especially with professional agencies like uh, the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab and, and uh, ACPE and, and more. And then hospice chaplaincy came up. And, um, you know, mm. while I was a lot at home, I've been um, focusing a lot on, you know, how can I be effective under these circumstances? And um, I, I liked hospice chaplaincy on Facebook and I joined several of the, of the meetings. And um, I feel very supported. It's very personal. And um, it's, it's just so... It's so wonderful to have that sense of community with colleagues, el you know, elsewhere in the country. So, it's nice that we're not alone. Yeah, mm -hmm. and supported. Yeah, and I represent the new wave of newbies. In that, <laughs> I heard about hospice chaplaincy this week when my colleague ah. said to me, "Hey, I'm doing this." webinar and how about would you like to also join us and I said yes and so last night I was looking at the website and there's a lot of good stuff there and, and I hope to be more involved so thank you very much for all the great work that you've been doing over the past five years. Well don't worry we'll take advantage of you it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, could you guys uh, maybe let's start with Kathy what, what is how did you um, Talk, talk about your calling to hospice ministry. Sure. Um, you know, I, perhaps like other people, when I decided to go into ministry professionally, I really wasn't sure to which aspect I was called. And so I entered North Park in the MDiv program and found out I'd have to do CPE. And, of course, like most people, tried to figure out how to either get out of doing it or, you know, <laughs> making it the least painful uh, uh, possible. But uh, my scheduling really was very challenging. I had moved to Chicago with some, with young kids who really couldn't be left alone. And I, I didn't know I'd have to do overnight, you know, um, on calls. And it was just unclear to me. And so I worked with my seminary about modifying the program. And I did um, hours in the hospital, Swedish Covenant Hospital, but I also was assigned to a floor 
that was connected to a senior residence, like an uh, assisted uh, living facility across the street. And so I accidentally became a chaplain to older folks starting in their, in their homes across the street, but then they would come over to the hospital if they were having an exacerbation or um, a decline. And so I very much accidentally became, started working with people at the end of their lives. And I just was so taken by sacredness of it. I had worked in a church, I'd worked with kids and families, and all those things were just lovely. I love all those groups. I work with kids with special needs. But there was something so compelling about listening to people at the end of their life that made me think, oh, I, you know, I'm... I might really enjoy this, and I seem to be good at it. You know, I was trying to decide if that was important or not. But yeah. And so um, when I graduated, I actually headed back home from Chicago out to Cape Cod, where I was living, and, um, uh, you know, sort of looked around at ministry positions and thought, well, I just I don't feel super called to be in a church full-time as a pastor. And I really kept being drawn back to thinking about end-of-life issues. And although, at least regionally out here in Massachusetts, it's sometimes very hard to get into a hospice position, I was blessed to be able to start uh, as a hospice chaplain with um, uh, Cape Cod Hospice and Palliative Care. I hesitate with their name because like, they've changed it a couple times, but that, <laughs> I think that's what it was called at the time. And I happened to fall into an amazing community of nurses and other chaplains and just, you know, just couldn't believe that people do this work. And so that was about 15 years ago. And I have worked for a number of chaplains. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, hospices. I've also served as a hos hospital chaplain per diem on the weekends and as a lot of people do. But uh, it is the work that I, I believe I've been called to. Um, and even though you both know I like to talk because we interact in other places, uh, I really like to listen to um, that, that sacred listening. And um, I think a lot about hospitality, you know, the Benedictine idea of radical hospitality and how chaplains are given the opportunity to do that in people's homes, uh, which is sort of upside down. But uh, we can be radically hospitable in any uh, setting. And I, I'm very drawn to that. So now that that's my brief story. It just mm -hmm. sounds to me so very interesting to hear your story as far as your discernment. I mean, that, uh, I mean, to know that that was what's being, you know, how God is drawing you into this ministry. Yeah. And, uh, and listening <laughs> and listening, that is very, uh, that's very cool. Well, and we know, too, I, I think most people who do this work have a little sense of this. If you're in church ministry, you know, there's a lot of politics involved, you know, church politics. I mean, and, you know, sometimes that's exhausting and you think, oh, gosh, what am I, am I accomplishing anything here? What's going on? And yeah. what I realized sitting at bedside was that there, there's just none of that. It's all fallen away. Yeah. And you really are able to get to the essence of a person and their fears and their hopes and just a real raw connection there and people mm. really respond to that is there a story maybe um that you could share that 
you felt after that kind of intervention that this is it for me, this is what life has for me? Well, I mean, I have, oh gosh, so many beautiful stories of different patients and different needs, but mm. uh, one that I think about a lot, I, I may have mentioned it to you guys in, a, in our other settings, is a patient who uh, was really struggling. She was in a, a skilled nursing facility. She was seen as very difficult by mm. both the staff of the nursing home and also by our staff, actually. Honestly, this is a different provider, different agency mm. than I'm at now. And uh, when I would go in to talk to her, uh, people said she's not going to want a chaplain. She, she's very religious, but, you know, she doesn't want to talk to anybody. She just wants it her way. Uh, you know, she was able to say to me, I'm just really afraid. I lost a lot of relationships earlier in my life. I have grandchildren that I never see that I'm afraid won't remember me. My kids won't talk to me right now because, you know, whatever the, the family drama was that was happening. Uh, they didn't know she was that sick at the time. And also, um, she said, I'm afraid to be alone. I'm afraid to die alone. And, of course, you never want to promise things because sometimes people can be discharged from hospice or, you know, they, they can revoke. But I said, you don't have to be scared about being alone. We will be with you mm -hmm. until the end. Like, I felt yeah. that was an okay thing to say. And, mm -hmm. um, and I said, can I help you? with any of those things? What if we called your son? You know, and those are the kind of things that just start an amazing process. He didn't know how sick she was. Yes, mm. he was mad at her. But of course he showed up immediately when he found out that she was dying in a nursing home. Mm. And the next week he brought the kids to see her who mm. had been thinking about her all the time, but because of this family thing, hadn't seen her, you know, uh -huh. and each time I would see her, she would report on some new little piece of that fear being chipped away, chipped away. And she, uh, one of the things that bothered her nursing <laughs> home about her is she, she continued to order out food every night from restaurants <laughs> who would <laughs> deliver it, you know, into her room. And they were like, what is wrong with her? And I said, well, she's dying. And <laughs> this brings her comfort. And mm. she, um, she's afraid of some things that we probably could be helping her with. And so we started to, you know, like many hospices have volunteers who do vigil and, mm. you know, who covered just sitting time. And so we, we initiated a, a, a program with that because she clearly said, I'm afraid of being alone when I die. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there was a night that uh, we just, we had a few cancellations of our, of our visitors our volunteers, I mean, and uh, it, this, something had come up, and I can't remember what, maybe some weather. Mm. And so I said I could go over. I didn't have a problem with that at all. I live very close to where that facility was. And so I went over. She was, she was declining. She was pretty actively moving towards death. And so she was not um, communicative. I wasn't going to be talking with her. I was just going to be sitting with her mm. and holding her hand. That's all. And I, I stayed there for about four hours because we had made this promise to her. It wasn't that I would be there, but we would be there. Hmm. And I just sat and, you know, all right, I probably looked at Facebook. Let's tell the truth. But, <laughs> you know, because I, I, she was not in communication with me, but I was holding her hand and praying with her and for her and reminding her that we were here, like we promised. And um, a nurse came in to do some meds or something, and he looked a little startled and he turned on the lights and he said, you know, I, I think she's passed. 
And I said, how is that possible? Hmm. I've been holding her hand physically the whole time. I didn't feel a tiny anything, nothing. And, um, and so I, I also said to them and the family that I was going to stay there until the funeral home came. So I was there quite a while. And so while I was doing my note, talking about how I was holding her hand and she seemed very peaceful and I was so glad that we could honor this request, I happened to notice that it was in fact her birthday. Mm. And, and we just didn't, I'm sure someone may have known, but I, I hadn't known. And it just struck me mm. about how um, just amazing it is about our agency, how we control our lives and when we end them, when we feel at peace. I felt in a way she was acknowledging she knew that we had honored her requests and she was ready to go and it was her birthday and it was just so beautiful. Um, and I don't think anyone would have anticipated that this woman's death was going to be beautiful, do you know? Mm. Um, and then all these people who all thought she was a big pain came in and spent time and talked. And it was, it was really lovely uh, to be able to, even as a group, affect so much change and growth at the end of somebody's life. Uh, and, and so I think the answer, Joe, to that question is, you know, when you feel like you can affect so much change in someone's life, you, mm. you, you can't help but feel the pull to, mm. to uh, allowing God to work through you, because that's how I feel. It is. Well, I like to look at yeah. it as well, is that you're there you are, and you had promised her this, that you would be there. That right. Was your, that was your gift to her. Mm-hmm. And her, and her yep. gift to you was, you've made it, made it so easy, I think I'll just head on out of here. And right, guys, without even being able to, to feel it in my hand. Nothing, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think, I, I get chills about that, because that is quite yeah. a... Uh, an acknowledgement of your relationship that you two had mm. and yeah. the love that you shared, which is what we're supposed to do, right. quite frankly. Yeah. Such an opportunity for us to offer that love, the last the last love she would have um, maybe experienced. Yep. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Petra, how, how was that for you? I, well, my calling um, developed throughout my life. Um, I started my career as a secretary Mm-hmm. Um, back in the days in the early 80s, but that was not it. And I became, um, I, I, as a young mom, I did my BA in human resource management and became a human resource consultant, which in the Netherlands is a little bit different than here where it's less administrative. You're more like coaching, management and staff, mm-hmm. recruiting and more, more the interactive things. And um, ultimately, I... Uh, I also trained to be a career coach and trainer and had my own business for a while to do training and and career coaching. And that was not like from, you know, how do you write a resume or a a cover letter? Mm. It was more finding, helping people to find their calling or helping them cope with things in the workplace in the context of their life. Mm. And I really enjoyed that. Um, th- then I moved to the U.S. and um, I had, a, you know, my spiritual life deepened um, in the in that I developed a personal relationship with Jesus, and that that was kind of life changing. And I felt mm-hmm. led to go to seminary, where I didn't choose for a MDiv because I didn't feel like becoming a senior pastor, mm-hmm. but more uh, continuing. Um, what I was already doing at a deeper level. 
Um, so I did that, but my English, I was hardly here five months. So I was studying a seminary with a dictionary in hand. <laughs> and um, it took me a lot of time. And um, my, we soon found out that my son, at that time 14, had Hodgkin lymphoma stage three. And so um, my important role at that time was being a mom mm. for him and being there going through chemo, going through Lucille Packard. And um, Hodgkin lymphoma has the, you know, is a cancer with a very high um, survival rate. And, and he was not really that sick, more like tired and, but the, the chemo and, and the radiation, it was hard. It was hard on our family. I must say my son was the trooper, but we there met a chaplain and um, we, she was a big support to us. And so, you know, so that settles in me how, how wonderful that was. What a, what a great way of supporting people. And when I graduated from seminary, we moved because of my husband's job to Hyderabad, India. Mm. Um, and, um, in Hyderabad, um, there is a good mix of Muslims, Christians, and Hindus, and other religions. And I, I've did, I made good friends there. And uh, but I also did some volunteering, like counseling and doing some training, and and learned to work with people from different backgrounds. But in India, hmm. everyone is spiritual. There is a uh. tremendous sense of community relationships matter mm. i mean uh, i learned there so much from friends from things i did and we've i've been there four years when i came back i was like okay what do i want to do my mom um was having uh alzheimer dementia and she's been having that for a long time um and whereas in india the population is very young Globally, the population is aging in a lot of places. And I saw, you know, when I visited my mom, how other elderly people and, and um, um, you know, my dad worked in a hospital. Um, so I felt kind of drawn to, peop to people in a healthcare setting. And so in, I was like, okay, do I want to be a family therapist or a chaplain? And I thought, well, chaplain is something... Um, that I feel drawn to. So at first, so I sent my application into Stanford um, and it, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I can do this one CPE in the summer. But then I came in and they said, Petra, we look at your background and we have a place in the residency program. And I was hooked. <laughs> and um, I, I feel so grateful that I did my CPE over there. What an amazing training grounds you know, you, it's, we had a wonderful group of people. One of my best friends was, I, another lady, Libby was there. She became my mentor. We became each other's mentor. And um, what a, what an amazing place to be and be trained and what an amazing job. And uh, mm. I have so many good memories there. Um, and, and that felt really like my, like a, like a calling, like mm. this is, this is where I want to be. And um, I, I must say that, you know, I, uh, whether it's hospice chaplaincy and hospice chaplaincy is even a level deeper. The, 
the hospital is deep, but hospice, you know, you're at the last chapter of someone's life. Mm. That's a special place to be in. Mm. So when the opportunity came on my path to work for another hospice agency than where I am now, um, I gladly took that opportunity. And um, so I, I feel like I'm at my place being there at the last chapter of their life, which is not scary at all. It's more very special. And um, looking back with people at their lives um, is is just is is very intriguing. People is there uh, Petra? Petra, is there yeah. a story? Is there a story that um, uh, that after that kind of ministry, you felt like this is home? Just just like Kathy shared. Um, yeah, I I remember um, an, a lady who um, who I visited and and I um, so we would look at the birds together. She would mm. be sitting behind the window and we would look at the birds together and and just feeling the deep presence together of of connection mm. without which I think sharing presence a sacred presence is beyond words. Mm. Look at the birds and and the flowers in her garden mm. and and I would read to her and ask about her life about her family her daughter would be there too mm. and um that that's connection that was there that felt you know this is where i need to be mm. um i've i've seen her decline over over the course of months and um i would visit her when she was not even responsive anymore mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i would sit be next to her and just put on some music or sing for her mm. and um you know i always ask you know what because especially with dementia where people may not respond to words anymore they respond to music because the the musical part of the brain is in the central part of the brain so music is the way to reach people and she was she was really declining, transitioning, and um, I started singing You Are My Sunshine. And mm. she opened her eyes and, in a way, sang along. Mm. And she is not the only one I had that happen with. And, and we had eye contact. And um, it's, but it's an, an connection that is so heartfelt so so deep mm. and um yeah that 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 was very special yeah um and and also um you know with being with people when when they're dying um i remember being with someone and and the partner was on the way um and uh you know it was it was in the night um mm. And I, I was sitting with that person. That person was alone in the room. Hmm. And I was just sitting there and listening to the breathing and and just pro literally providing presence on hmm. different levels. Hmm. Um, and the partner was on the way with public transportation, turned out, or Uber trying to get there, hmm. but couldn't make it in time. And um, I got a call later I, I was there when the patient passed um, and um, the partner hadn't been able to make it, which is was a deep loss. 
-hmm. and gave Mm -hmm. deep grief. But I could share, I could describe to the partner those last moments. Because you were there. And and yeah, Mm -hmm. and I could describe and give the partner a sense of presence. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was my role at that time. And, wow. and that felt significant. And I, f- I felt privileged, you it know, is a, it to, is to be that connection to, to two people who love each other. Amen. It definitely yeah. is a, a, a privilege. Claire, yeah. Claire, my dear, what, uh, what, uh, what triggers your call to this ministry? So, this is what I just want to say, like, how is we're sharing our stories here? That's such a beautiful part of being a chaplain is hearing these sacred stories. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sitting here, I was just thinking, what a gift it is for me to share in this in this environment my story. So as a young child, I was about six years old, and my very best friend died. Mm-hmm. And um, I was not supported at all in this experience. And I remember as a child thinking about, well, you know, what would it have been like if I was there and how would it be and what happened? And um, my parents, my, my parents, you know, would they love me dearly? But they were so busy. They didn't have any time for this child who was like wrestling with grief and loss. Mm. And, um, and, that, and so I think at that age, I, I couldn't really, um, the feelings were really hard for me to be with which is why I went to the place of the head a lot, mm. going more to like science and trying to work. I couldn't, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't work out these feelings. So I thought, well, maybe if I understand biology and science, it's going to help me with these feelings. Mm. So I think that's what st- that sent me in the path of, um, of science. And then I had uh, an- other losses when I was in my 20s. And that's when I thought, well, you know, something's got to change here, Claire. And um, I was working in a lab in Oxford, and a woman came to the same lab who had been working in San Francisco in science. Mm -hmm. She was always talking about how in California you could do this, there's the beach, there's the the snow, there's these people you can talk to. and, (laughs) And I thought, well, that sounds like a good deal. And I actually wanted to come to California because I thought, well, when I come to California, it's going to be a good thing when I do therapy rather than in England. It's kind of like you know, people who do therapy is kind of not quite, well, not quite as acceptable. So I applied for jobs in California, came out to California and startup company Biotech, went through many years of therapy and then, and was really inspired by the power of therapy and self-awareness mm. on this person and my ability to like, resolve things that have happened in the past and put them in the context of who I am in, in this moment. So I think, oh, you know, I think I'm going to be a therapist, which is why I went to do a master's in counseling psychology. Hmm. And then after that, I was in a place where I really needed to work to earn some money. And somebody told me about chaplaincy and that, <laughs> you know, when you get, when you get to hmm. study your CPE, you get a stipend, whereas if you go on the master's in counseling psychology route to be a therapist, you have to like collect all these hours, which are often lowly paid. Mm. And after you've got your CPE, you know, you can work as a chaplain. 
but it wasn't just that. It was just like as soon as I heard the concept of like being with people who are at the end of life mm-hmm. from a perspective of it's a part of life and I can and we as humans get through things together, which had been my experience of my own healing. Mm. Oh, that is so what I want to do. So um, I heard about the program at Stanford and I heard it was very competitive and I thought, well, I'll just take the next step. And I had such fun doing my application and I thought, I'll just take the next step. And then I got called for an interview and I celebrated that I got an interview. And then I I got offered a place and it was all like, I was just taking the next step, which is a part of kind of what we do in chaplaincy is we like walk with the people that we serve. We kind Mm. of like, we take the next step. We take the next step. We don't have big expectations about what's going to happen. We just, we just see. And, and um, so it was a blessing that I got to do the CP program and it was like marvelous and wonderful. And then from there, I came to work at Pathways Home Health and Hospice and I've been here ever since. What on a what a journey, huh? Yeah, I I'm, yeah. I'm I mean I, I I heard you talk earlier about your uh, your affiliate. Well, I can't say affiliation. Your understanding of Buddhism, uh-huh. and how does that weave into all of this? I mean, I hear from the Christian perspective, but how does this all weave in together? I mean, am, am I jumping ahead of this, Saul? Are we okay? Yeah, we'll, we'll take a break. Let's take a break, oh, and then we'll the second we'll, set. We'll let you think about it for a minute, okay? Yeah, so let's take a break. Uh, uh, we'll come back. Thank you. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Jolia, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. All right, welcome back to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are talking to three very interesting chaplains, Kathy, Petra, and Claire. Uh, Kathy, um, earlier on, you you wanted to talk about self-care and self-care practices. Could you... Tell us more about that concept. Yeah, uh, I'd love to. I think that, um, you know, we learn a lot. I feel this way. I learn from every patient that I've cared for, something. Um, And there have been some people who really have highlighted to me uh, the need to practice for myself as I try to encourage them to do uh, a a sort of radical self-care. Not sort of, you know, just like self-help or big goals and trying to, you know, in our time of um, isolation here, a lot of people are trying to say how productive they're going to be and they're going to learn French and (laughs) uh, bake all the sourdough bread in the world. And, you know, they all have these crazy goals. (laughs) But I think that self-care for us, people who, as chaplains, sometimes are very isolated because we may be the only chaplain with our group. Uh, because of numbers, etc., hmm. or because we are caregivers who sometimes forget to care for ourselves, uh, that this is a real area uh, of challenge, I would say, an opportunity uh, for, for chaplains. And so, in thinking about sharing some of that here, you know, that I think uh, self-care is very personal for each one of us. It could look very different. What is 
uh, really something I need to do may be something you do all the time and you don't need any encouragement to do it. Um, I feel like the radical part actually of self-care is that it needs to be really gentle, not aggressive, not, you know, no charts on the wall with stars and, you know, <laughs> hmm. check marks for what we've accomplished, but it's just really gentle and follows our real needs, our real internal needs. And um, I also was thinking about how this kind of work sometimes should be something that we generally sort of keep to ourselves. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but when you're sharing with people that you're taking care of yourself, hmm. I find in the work we do, some people feel that's kind of indulgent because there are other people who work in hospice and, and in medical care who will um, are very proud to sort of be run down. Do you know what I mean? Like, hmm. yep. They're happy to say, I'm exhausted. I can't believe I'm up 20 hours a day. And I'm, so, and I, I don't want to argue with that, if that makes them feel better. But for me, I know that that would be, um, that would be a, a non, non-starter for me to, to be so exhausted. So I, I like to encourage people, if they're taking care of themselves, to keep that just their own little, not a secret, but, you know, keep it to themselves to see, to have some privacy with it, I guess. And so, uh, and the reason I was thinking about that is, you know, mm. we work with nurses and social workers who work with tools, right? The nurse mm. has her stethoscope and medication and uh, she can find out what someone's blood pressure is and she can measure things. Um, a social worker has other assessment tools as well. But I believe that chaplains are peculiarly, uh, that's a hard word, uh, their <laughs> own tool. I am the tool that I bring into that room hmm. um, to be able to connect with someone or hear their pain or see that they want to be challenged by, you know, the next question or like me listening enough to say, oh, say more about that. You know, I need to be attentive and uh, a non-anxious presence. And so we are our own tools and therefore we need to maintain them. Uh, so, you know, maybe I rationalize that as it's sort of a work, you know, work expense, work, <laughs> work time. I can, I can do this, but uh, I need to do that to be a good chaplain. And so in my mind, I picture, as we frequently do, I guess, to kind of split that up into how we care for our bodies and our minds and our spirits. And for some, this, you know, two of these areas may be no problem. And the third is the one you'd really need to focus on. So, hmm. uh, you know, everyone is different. But for me, uh, particularly in time of pandemic, um, I need to, for my body, I need to really care for it in a different way than uh, perhaps I was uh, when I was driving around and going through McDonald's drive throughs before, you know. Hmm. And, and that to sort of keep to a schedule, to drink more water than I think I need, hmm. To uh, my new favorite thing is to is to s sit on my um, exercise bike while I'm waiting for our morning call. You know, mm. wait, waiting for everybody to log in, yeah. and just and just ride my bike while I'm waiting. You know, uh, because it's time that I that I uh, can take advantage of it in a different way. Um, so physically, people, if they are not already um, good at paying attention to their body's needs, this is a great opportunity to attend to that. Uh, and then in my mind, I, I've thought about this a lot. You know, I need to turn off that, the, the, that news show, 
You know, mm. I can't, I cannot watch the news 24 hours a day because yeah. I'm home more. So it's, it's a temptation, but the truth is the news doesn't change from 9am to 9pm, honestly. And so to, for me to say, I'm just going to watch one, one show mm. that talks about the daily, what's going on in the day. And that's it. Uh, has been very helpful for my just uh, not to have a racing mind all the time. Um, And I think for me, reducing stimulation, you know, that's what that's about. Maybe somebody else doesn't struggle with that, but I've got too many things, you know, going on in my head. So that, that's what to me that's about. Um, And instead of sort of activating my fear space in my head, you know, Mm. about coronavirus uh, to be able to read something that is soothing or that is um, something I wouldn't normally read. Like, I'm not a person who reads novels or nonfiction. I mean, or fiction, you know, I'm very focused on fiction, in fact. And and so to listen to a, an audible book, you know, that's a, a novel, is this is very helpful mm. for my balance and self-care. Um, Kathy, you brought up some things that you were speaking yep. of earlier that, uh, triggered a response in me uh, about self-care and not knowing that this is something that I needed to do. And, and that mm. was just the, the idea of ritual or yep. the things that I used to do. I just remember when, I, when this whole thing started and I just felt like so out of whack, I guess would be it. Yep. How, I mean, this is a time for us to self- analyze, I guess you would say, and look at what it is that can, and, and they're still stressed thinking about, you know, what is it that I'm, I should be doing that I'm not doing? Right. And that's not really right. good self-care. Right. So how do we get, how do we get around those things? How do you see that that's something? Well, that for me, and uh, as I say, I, I love my colleagues that I work with um, at hospice, but sometimes when I do hear them, as I say, saying that they're exhausted or they're, they're overspending or they're wearing themselves out, that's kind of a cautionary tale for me uh-huh. because I, I may just be hearing that and very honestly, nobody may be asking me how I'm doing, you know, because we talk about <laughs> chaplains sometimes being the last one on the list. Um, but to hear, <laughs> hear other people being stressed or what's stressing them or people talking about, well, I'm eating too much, or I'm, why am I doing all these things? It's a cautionary tale if, Hmm. as you say, if one is interested in thinking during this time about how to care for oneself better. Some people, it's just too much. But um, I think if we can't, if I can't do it for myself, I won't be able to be available for a patient or a family member who is also feeling these things. Uh, I can't be that non-anxious presence if uh-huh. I am in turmoil inside of myself, you know, that's, that's exactly. what I meant about being the tool, you know? Yep, exactly. Um, and so I also think, I've been thinking a lot about this. A lot of people are, I'm watching people on TV going back to bars, you know, when the state uh-huh. opens and they all rush back to see each other. And, to, and I think, wow, I can't imagine doing that on any day of my life, you know, because <laughs> it just happens not to be how I would find comfort. But hmm. that's how I feel about church, though. You know, mm-hmm. that, it, I mean, I wouldn't because I feel it's a little scary, but when church is open again, people who are church-focused or spiritually focused, they've been waiting for this for a long time. That's part of my isolation is 
the things that I used to be able to do as part of ritual and self-care and expression of my faith have been all cut off in terms of, you know, being in a building and being with like-minded people. That, that's been pretty tough. Mm. Um, and uh, I think uh, that, of course, that's the spiritual the, of, the, of the body, mind, spirit. That's maybe the spirit piece of it. But I had to figure out how to allow me to find new ways to have mm-hmm. spiritual ritual because that was the most difficult for me. It wasn't going out to a pub, mm-hmm. you know, or going to a restaurant. I keep hearing people talking about what restaurant they're going to go to. And like yet another thing that doesn't, it doesn't spark anything in me at all about, you know, missing that. But church and just sitting in a sacred space that's mm-hmm. really hard for me because we're all so mm-hmm. different, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so that for me, that to figure out what it is that we are missing is the first, the first step, as you're saying, sort of how do you figure this out? Uh, and to sit quietly. And to do that, I need to turn off the TV, you know, and yeah. not listen to how many uh, new cases of COVID-19 there are today. That's not, mm. that is not going to prepare me for anything. Yeah. Um, but particularly because of those three things spiritually, that's really important to me. Um, I have tried to find resources that I wouldn't normally seek out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the internet is full of beautiful resources. Uh, we have a, we have an Abbey near us here that I, that I'm affiliated with on a regular basis, but they've been putting up their morning prayer, their compliance services, also Buddhist singing bowl meditations, like all different things that we might not necessarily have in our schedule are open to us right now. Listening to other people preach or speak. Uh, And I, and I've said this to you guys too, but I will say it again today. This resource has been an incredibly essential part of my isolation, spiritual self-care, just Mm -hmm. to find uh, like-minded people who do similar work and who can laugh about the absurdities of, you know, (laughs) managed care, you know, (laughs) how chaplains are seen, you know, we laugh about not being non-essential, right? Exactly. Um, Yeah. And, but you could laugh about it with somebody else. If it's just you by yourself, you'd probably be crying about it. And so that's that's why I, when you ask me what I have been thinking about or would like to talk about why it feels so important to us, because I think that this physical isolation can make us feel honestly alone, but we are not. But it takes us uh, some time to look at what the resources are and the mm. fact that we all benefit from each other. It's not just me looking to be helped, but all of us in our group when we talk or when we have our classes love being together mm. it's just such those kind of things are an amazing gift and so um I, I i'll i'll wrap it up so you can move to the next one but i i would i say these three words is what i decided we could sum it up with mm. that to find a, a time of silence to assess some of our own needs our self-care needs and to really see if how we're going to be able to uh, meet those uh that we seek support the second s word i'm doing alliteration for you uh, to reach out to a professional group like this or uh, community groups online or more FaceTiming or forcing my kids to call me, you know, from Chicago on the phone <laughs> when they don't want to call because they, they, they're adults and they don't do that stuff. Um, 
really looking for support. And then the third is to um, to share. So silence, support, and share. And that we have stories to tell, just like these beautiful stories we heard today. And they lift, we lift each other up by sharing those things and we become less isolated. So that that's just what I've been sort of meditating on during this crazy time of COVID isolation. I, I appreciate you letting me chat about it. Uh, well said. Thank you. That very was much. powerful. Yes, very nice. Uh, Petra, you're big on providing presence. Yeah. Could you, <laughs> could you explain well, more of that? I'll gladly explain more of that. And I, I want to start that with a quote of Henry Nouwen. And then t- just tell it about it with a few stories, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. So, Hen- so this is really at the heart for me at Presence, the Ministry of Presence. Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, mm. to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out, with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Hmm. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's living it. It's living hmm. it in all, uh, holistically. And um, I, you know... I've also tasted church ministry, but how much I love as a chaplain being in the community with people who can be isolated or have no connection to community or whatever. Um, that's that's really special. And, um, you know, presence in this time of the COVID, I sense that I do it with a heightened sense of awareness, which I feel in my body which I am spiritually aware, emotionally aware of. And, and a little link to self-care, our bodies don't lie. You know, my body tells me how I'm doing. Therefore, right. I need to listen to my body. Very important, even more so in this time. Hmm. So, you know, we are in the time of COVID, we are suddenly doing from one moment to the other, the Ministry of Virtual Presence by phone, plain old phone, by uh, FaceTime or through other um, media like Zoom or, or, I mean, a lot of out there. Um, y- you know, so I have been calling people by phone and, um, you know, sometimes I feel so inadequate because the phone is not my tool to more like to start care of, especially if I don't know someone. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it takes, it's a different way of being. The being is in our, in our voice, in what we say. Um, we cannot see how other people are responding. Um, so for me, it was a, a journey to feel more comfortable with that. And um, I, I think at at the heart of virtual presence is I heard my colleague say this week after I had been off is that Petra, it's good to hear your voice again. Mm -hmm. And I think that means also that our voice in a way of being plays a role, Mm. you know, the words we say, the tone we have, you know, I know that from my work, I have kind of a comforting 
counselor's voice or when I'm training, you know, you talk in another way, but it's also you, I can use with awareness. It's, you know, talking to an elderly spouse of a, of a patient who is not even able to come to the phone, but just to acknowledge and validate her powerlessness and helplessness of, you know, she, she knows he doesn't eat or uh, is not doing too well, is getting weaker, cannot visit him. And just to acknowledge and validate her is is just means a lot. And to say, you know, I I hear you, and um, you know, just know our nurse can go in there and be with him. So people are with him, trusted faces, and um, so so that's a big thing. It's it's that validating. We we don't have mm. a solution. There's no way of fixing it. Um, I think. The, with FaceTime, um, very sweet um, contact with a patient who is elderly and, and, and some confusion, probably some dementia. And, um, you know, it's the way it, it's a matter of starting a rapport to build a relationship. So, you know, again, I started off with the song, um, you are my sunshine and, um, and she responded to it, the, the eye contact, and and saying, "Hey, how are you? And do you hear <laughs> my voice?" And um, and then in the me on the side, I was also connecting with with the caregiver who was there, to, and saying, "Hey, how are you guys doing?" And thank you for all being there. So she was also on my team of of virtual presence, and um, you know, just reading some of her favorite scripture verses, um, praying, um, just asking, how are you? And then she said the sweetest thing. She didn't know me for mm. the first time. She said, I miss you and you're beautiful. I mean, it's, <laughs> so even it, it shows that through FaceTime, it's also possible to make that connection but we cannot do it on their own. We 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 need to do it with other people. So I was so grateful to that caregiver in mm. that facility. Um, and yeah, visits are are also there now and then. Um, and and but that's also very different going in with a mask, keeping your distance. Yep. Um, yeah. and, um, I mean, and and as chaplains, uh, as a chaplain, I'm all too aware of taking so often split second decisions because you're assessing the situation in the moment and see what's needed in the, in the environment. So to provide spiritual care there at the, at the bedside where the mask was different. And, um, I, I was able with, with a, with a dying patient to, to provide like a ceremony with, with the family. Um, but there was someone who was hard of hearing, and with the ma my mask on, I he the person could not understand what I was saying because of lip reading. So, you know, in the moment, I had I decided like, okay, I'm I said I'm gonna keep my distance more so, and then I'll take my mask off for while talking those few moments. So that person who was hard of hearing could be included because there was grief, loss and grief there. Mm -hmm. And just by including that person, you know, 
that was that was giving comfort and, and a sense of belonging is very important and so so that mattered a lot wow. and um so but after my visit i called my friend who who makes some you know cloth mask and i've asked her can you please make a mask for me with a visible part so that i have that's when i have that situation and next time someone can see my mouth so mm. you know there comes a lot to it to that things we haven't thought of yeah wow. yeah yep. but that, that's powerful that, that's yeah so you know also there i'm i'm so glad for people around me also colleagues who provide with ppe so we can well go well equipped in there mm. um and yes i lost my mom at the beginning of march my mom had end stage alzheimer uh was in a nursing home in the netherlands and she was sick um she she was um sick and they thought she had covid but was tested and kept in isolation turned out she didn't have covid luckily um and she passed away in her sleep um and i think it was not only being the physical part of sick um but also the isolation my mom was a social person very relational and i think there are so much more way the forms of pain you know being mm. alone is a form of pain yeah um and um it was also pain for us a raw pain not being able to be there and um so losing my mom going through that journey and having that at the beginning of the whole covid period definitely opened my heart for patients and family who go through similar situations mm. and to be able to minister to them to to serve them with more compassion so and i was aware of my grief journey it was surreal to see my mom's funeral service online and i saw there you know that that little chapel with seven family members spread out through the little chapel the a pastor instead of me doing the funeral service but you know my husband my daughter and i we could watch um through a live stream i it was a comfort to see my loved ones there to hear the words of the pastor and i later talked with my brother about how it was for them how it felt for for him to to have a few personal words with the pastor to be there to see my mom being you know buried and um my daughter and i we we did that same day a grief <coughs> ritual on their own by going to a place with flowers near the water with a little candle and just say words of goodbye to my mom and i must say that 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 was healing that gave a sense of wholeness that we needed in that moment mm. and uh, you know we will do a memorial service later on uh, you know whatever way feels comforting uh, then what also helped me through this is that you know the support of colleagues and people around me it's you know when i look at my work context it feels so good to be carried by your colleagues when you going through a situation like that 
it makes if I feel like it made me a wounded healer. I had mm. loss and grief, mm. but I have had a sense of healing. It all it, I could make it um, part of my work that was very helpful um, mm. because you know you can you need to have a sense of healing or or coping that that enables you to serve well. Um, otherwise you better otherwise you better not serve <laughs> um, so so it's you know it's it's it must be constructive so um but definitely it helps me right now to be present in a certain way with people and and like i said in the in my quote to be weak with the weak and vulnerable with the vulnerable we're chaplains but we're we're in there as human beings we are human beings with other human beings mm. and um if people aren't having no faith i often say hey i'm the good friend on the team i don't look at your medical condition or whatever you know i look at who you are as a human being and just i'm there with you and listen to you um, and, you know, the sense of being present is deep listening and just being offering a safe, sacred space where people can be fully themselves. Mm. There's also the ministry of absence, especially right now. We cannot be there. Mm. You know, I support my colleagues in being there for other patients. Yeah. I support facility staff by saying, hey, Thank you for what you're doing. We care about you. We think of you. Sending cards is another way of being present with some quotes or scripture or, or prayers. Um, there, I think it makes us all more resourceful. And, mm. you know, but together we can do it as chaplains yes. and as teams, as hospitals. We are part of an interdisciplinary team. And um, I think that's that's a blessing. And, you know, it's... There will be post-trauma, post-burnout a lot, but there will also be post-traumatic growth. We will mm. also, you know, we will also grow because of all of this. Mm. And, and diff it's different, all different than other disasters where it's like, you know, a Katrina or 9-11, it's happened. And then you have the aftermath. Well, this, this is ongoing. We're in it for the long haul. Thank you for those thoughts on presence, Joe. Sure. Uh, Miss Claire, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about your, uh, the weaving in of the, the Buddhist tradition as well with uh, taking care of folks and how that, how that comes about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, first, I'd like to say that um, that presence and self-care are all woven into who I am and what we do. Uh -huh. And um, with regard to, to the, from a Buddhist perspective, a couple of things. And the first thing is just for us all to just stop for a moment and take a breath to um, feel our feet on the earth, feeling supported by how we're seated right now. And to let the breath enter the body, fill the body and leave the body. 
And in this moment of breath, there's a natural slowing down, a taking in, a being receptive, and seeds of acceptance. When I do my work in hospice, I'm often reminded that from a Buddhist perspective, pain is inevitable. Nobody gets through this life without difficulties, without mm. pain. And suffering is optional. Mm. So as a hospice chaplain, we go in and we assess the situation from a holistic perspective, you know, what's going on with our patients, physically, spiritually, emotionally, with regard to their interactions with their family, with their community. So that's a holistic perspective. It's like taking it all in. Mm. And then from the spiritual perspective, Part of what I do is look at what's getting in the way here of a sense of well-being. Sure, there's difficulty. Sure, there's things that's not working. That's part of the human condition. But what's getting in the way of the sense of well-being, the sense of acceptance? I mean, you hit the nail on the head, and especially when you start thinking about when you're there in the presence of a person who is dying, and you know that there's something out there that is just not making the whole, making them whole. And we all think that we can fix it, but it's not our job. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, it's, their, it's their work, and we've mm -hmm. got to be supportive of that. Mm -hmm. And then what we can do as chaplains is to accept that there are things that the people that we work with may never accept, may never work through. And then right. that energy right. of acceptance is a step towards healing and acceptance. Hmm. Yeah, but and yeah, knowing that there is a difference, what what is you know what is yours and what is theirs. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't realize I had this this little bit of a Buddhist uh, approach to things, like you've just showed me. Uh, I find that very uh, enlightening. Uh, well, I think that to be human on this planet is to be spiritual, and that that we all experience express our spirituality in many different ways and yep. that there are many common threads between all spiritual practices. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And the idea that, that you can be out there and to uh, guide people along on this journey and in, in, in interact in all the, the faith traditions and understanding this, I think, is a very powerful presence that you bring, would be bringing to families and, and patients. Then mm -hmm. I think that we all bring because I think that to be a chaplain is to be honoring of a person's spirituality, to be mm -hmm. honoring of where our patients and families are at. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, you know, for, for, for me, it's about trying to put parts of myself out of the way so that I can be with and be of service. And so for me, that means honoring and respecting and being with the spiritual or religious beliefs of the people that 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 I'm with. And so long as it brings harm to none, I'm very happy to, you know, facilitate and to be with and to honor and to participate. Mm 
in whatever works for the family and patients. Thank you very much uh, for sharing. Thank you for giving of yourself. Uh, that was Kathy, Petra, and Claire. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. And thank you. Oh, this for has been our uh, blessings. Wonderful. Bye. Wonderful. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye